Turn with me again to John's Gospel, chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13. Let's all seek the Lord together in prayer as we come to consider God's precious Word this morning. John 13. Let us all bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for being come into Thy presence through our Saviour's name. Lord, we think of even the solemnity of that hymn, and even to think of how, or rather why, we come to gather to remember Thy death. Lord, it was for our sakes, my peace to make. Now sleeps the sword of God's justice against us. And, O oh Lord, we pray that, Lord, even as we would come to consider thy word, this portion in which we read, in which we come to even a solemn time when we think of Christ's last supper with the disciples. And as Judas Iscariot makes his leave to betray the Lord Jesus, O Lord, we think that all of that was for us, that thou was despised, rejected, forsaken, and art the man of sorrows. Lord, we pray for thy help as we come to consider thy word this morning. Lord, I acknowledge my need of thee. Lord, I feel the weight of the responsibility of ministering thy word this morning. And so, God, I pray that thou wouldst fill me to overflow with the blessed Holy Spirit. I pray that thou wouldst whisper into my ears the words that I am to speak. Fill my mouth with the words that I am to preach. May none be seen and may none be heard save Jesus only. Make our hearts and eyes and ears attentive to thy word this morning. Lord, make us not to miss out the blessing this morning. May we receive the blessing. May we receive that word in season, that word of instruction, that word of rebuke, and give us grace to receive thy word. And may thy word make a radical change to our lives if it is needed. O God, we pray, I would speak to us, prepare our hearts even now, even as we come to consider thy death and resurrection. Be in our midst, give help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a tremendous scene in this chapter of Christ as the servant. And what a wonder to have the Son of God who takes the garment and washes the disciples' feet. You know, even as I read through this chapter, we can maybe imagine among the disciples, as we see in other portions, their competitiveness that they had among them of who was better than the other. We can imagine none of the disciples being willing to take this task, to take this role in washing each other's feet. No one was willing to stoop low to do this menial task, this task in which the lowest of all servants would have took up to do. But we, he, we see here in this chapter that Christ, he takes up this role without being asked to do so, without even offering himself uh, to, to do so. He goes and does it of his own accord. He does it almost straight away when we read the verses 4 and 5, where Christ rises from supper and laid aside his garment and took a towel and girded himself after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with a tile wherewith he was girded. The disciples, we can imagine, were not willing to wipe each other's feet. And that is why I suggest Christ says these words in the verses 14 and 15, where Christ says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also ye ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Christ also to show forth a, a, an important fruit of the Spirit, namely humility. Humility. And this is a, a, what is shown tremendously before us, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no one, and neither will there ever be, an individual as humble as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think about who He is for a moment. He is the Son of God who dwelt in the heavenlies, who sat upon a throne, who is praised by the angels and of the redeemed, where they feel themselves in His presence, where they cry the, th uh, the holy, holy, holy before His presence. And we think of Christ who left it all to show forth many things to us, many things including his humility in washing the disciples' feet. He did so to show forth, I believe, an important truth. And that is why he says to Peter in the first seven of this chapter, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter didn't want Christ to wash his feet. They believed, of course, that he was the Son of God, that he was not just a mere man, but he was rather the God-man. The Messiah. And this chapter, I believe, shows forth Peter at his worst. Peter, in his character of being quick to act and slow to think. We think of the first eight where he says to Christ, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And the first 37, where Peter says, Why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Peter had not learned true humility until he had fall in his great sin. And as we prepare this Lord's Day to come to the Lord's table, how important it is that we come to the table with that prepared heart, even as we're thinking here of that humble heart, hearts that have been reminded of Christ's work, hearts that need to, to be washed afresh in Christ's blood, let me ask, even at this stage, have we made this preparation to prepare ourselves and partaking of the Lord's table? You know, Peter didn't fully grasp what Jesus was seeking to do by way of washing the disciples' feet. And John, he took note of this in his account, in his gospel account here. And he could do so now, having come to the understanding of what Christ was doing, remembering what Christ said to Peter what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And of course, today we have the complete canon of Scripture. We are in the hereafter of this event. And therefore, we can understand, at least in part, of what Christ was doing here. He was demonstrating what I want us to consider this morning, Christ's sanctifying washing. Christ's sanctifying washing. And I want us to consider the section, verses 4 to 17 this morning. And this is a washing that occurs right before the institution of the Lord's Supper. And may we consider these truths and apply them to our hearts now, even before we come to partake of the Lord's table. Notice firstly, 
that sinners are excluded from this washing and this sacrament. This supper only begins once Judas Iscariot is gone and away. He goes away, as we read in this chapter, to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas was an unbeliever. He lived in hypocrisy, knowing no doubt the, the teachings of Christ, but yet had not applied or obeyed the teachings of Christ. Thus we can learn from this passage that this sacrament is only for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who are saved, for those that have came to that experience of knowing Christ as their own and personal Savior. The unbeliever has no grounds to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we are familiar, no doubt, of where Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, he deals with this institution in his epistle to the Corinthians. In the First Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 34. And in the first 27 of that section, Paul gives a strong warning. A warning that needs to be emphasized, I even believe, even today. For I believe that there are many even today that would partake of the Lord's table unworthy, being unsaved. And so Paul, he gives this warning uh, concerning eating unworthily of the Lord's table, where Paul says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It condemns you the more. For you know that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed for sinners, and yet you partake of the Lord's Supper with your heart and soul in defiance before God. You have not obeyed the gospel command to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ alone. The Shorter Catechism in the number 97 asks the following question, what is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. To partake of the Lord's Supper unsaved is to eat and drink judgment and damnation to ourselves. You may make yourself even a liar before God, even in partaking of the symbols of Christ's body and blood, suggesting that you're someone that you're not, i.e. having the appearance that you're saved, and yet your heart is far from God. Even in that catechism, we have the following proof texts in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, where Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And also 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where Paul says again, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Be sure, I say to you this morning, be sure of your salvation. Be sure that God has made that wonderful and that radical change in your life where you desire holiness and hate sin and hate unrighteousness. With such a heart you honor the Lord in partaking the, the Lord's table and remembering his death and how he put away sin in your life that you may be able to stand acceptable in his sight. 
As I think of such things, let me ask you the question this morning. Are you saved this morning? Have you came to that experience where you know Christ as your own and personal Savior, where He took your sins upon Himself and died for your sins? Have you come to the cross of Christ where He made that all-sufficient sacrifice for sinners, so that whosoever believeth in Him and whosoever calleth upon Him shall be saved, shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. You know, even as we think of this chapter, you might think and ask yourself, did Judas Iscariot, did he have his feet washed? I say, yes, Christ did wash his feet. Was he wrong to do so, you might ask? I say, of course not. For in this washing, he wasn't doing it in the spiritual sense, but rather in the literal sense. But in this action of washing the disciples' feet, he was showing forth a spiritual truth. In a sense, we could say, in a sense, it's almost like a parable. When we think of a parable, it is an earthly story with a heavenly and spiritual meaning. And here Christ, he was doing this in the physical and literal sense in order to show forth an important and spiritual truth, a spiritual lesson in which we want to consider this morning. And of course, Christ says, even after washing their feet in the verse 11, that ye are not all clean. Of course, he's referring to Judas Iscariot in the spiritual sense. He was not clean. He was unsaved. And even when I think of the scene here, and be, if you were to be one among the disciples, would they not be fearful words to hear Christ say, ye are all not clean. Here Christ was saying that there was someone in the midst that was unclean in his sight. Dear sinner, I want to say that is what Christ concludes and says of you at this time, that you are unclean in His sight. But there is washing away of sin for you if you trust in Him. Judas was not permitted to partake of this supper. The devil had went into him. He was the devil's instrument. He was the devil's agent. Judas betrays Christ, not for any good reason, but for a selfish reason, to obtain money, to obtain a reward from the chief priests and the council. But Jesus washes the disciples' feet, not for any personal gain, not to get any recognition, but out of love for their souls, he washes their feet. Judas's lusting for money had blinded him from seeing what he was doing. He was blinded by sin. It wasn't until he reached to the other side of sin, having got the money and seeing the bag of money that he had, that he then beheld that it was a bag of blood, bag of innocent blood. And it didn't give him joy, but rather torment. He even confessed before the chief priests that had given him this reward that he had betrayed the innocent blood in sinning against Christ. And so, being unable to live with that, he done, or rather, rather, he killed himself, being unable to live with what he did. He may have thought that there was no way God could forgive him for doing such a foolish and devilish deed, and so he departed and went into hell. I believe he went to hell. For the simple fact of what Christ says in Matthew 26 and the verse 24. 
And there Christ says, Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been good if he had not been born. Yes, we could say it would have been good that he had not been born because he would betray Christ. But life must be seen for what it is. It is preparation for the coming eternity. Judas Iscariot would be under tremendous condemnation for betraying Christ. Or perhaps we could even say further, not only in betraying Christ, but rather killing Christ. For since through his betrayal, that is what opened the door for Christ to die. This, this needed to happen in order for Christ to die. Judas had to betray him. To try to comprehend such condemnation because of this great sin, truly we would have to say that it would have been good if he had not been born. If he was in heaven at this time, Christ would not have said those things. It would have been good if he was not born. Therefore, surely he was and is in hell. The devil was in Judas. We read in the verses 27 to 29 in this chapter, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that, that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And then comes the Lord's Supper. Once Judas is gone, and God is with those who are justified, only those who are saved partake of the Lord's table is what's displayed here. They are those for whom Christ died for. They are those for whom Christ's body and blood was for. Therefore, as believers, when we partake, we remember the Lord's death. And remember it was for our sake that his body was broken for us, and that his blood was shed for us. Notice, secondly, that saints need this sanctifying washing. It is important that while we could perhaps see the gospel application that could be taken here of Christ washing the disciples' feet, when Christ says in the first eight, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Christ was not showing forth the washing of justification. That is, that washing of removing sin, the penalty of sin, which we all have before our faith in Christ. He was showing forth the importance of sanctifying washing, the daily washing that the Christian needs. Peter, when he hears Christ's response to him, he says to Christ in the verse 9, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter was not dirty in those places, but only at the feet. And so Christ says in the first 10, that he that is washed, or we could even say that he that is justified, needeth not to save wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are, not, and ye are clean, but not all. You see, if Christ was to show forth the justifying washing, he would have washed every part of the disciples but he washed only the part which was dirty with and among the disciples, namely the feet, for they were clean everywhere else. And dear believer, as we go on through life, you know that we are only sinners saved by the grace of God. We're far from perfect. 
we still fall and fail God. And we're prone to wander, prone to backslide, and prone to be fascinated in sin. Christ washes the disciples' feet because their feet shows their walk. We do not walk perfectly in our Christian walk. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds can cause the dirt to stick to us, to stick to our feet. And how we need to have our feet washed daily. We sin every day. Let me even ask you, even this morning, dear believer, when was the last time that you confessed your sins to God? When was the last time you asked God to forgive you for a particular failure and for a particular sin? When was the last time you asked God to wash you afresh in His blood? Has it been a long time? And if you think about it, the longer you leave the, the waters of sanctification, the dirtier you will be. Mud sticks to mud. And how far up has the dirt climbed up to your feet? Has it came up to your ankles? Has it got on your outward appearance, namely your clothes and your outward appearance? Has the mud even went up to your knees and failing to get before God on your knees in prayer? Christ's washing removes every stain of sin. Even from our outward appearance and our clothes, and when I mention about the clothes getting dirtied, I refer rather to how the world sees you. Does the world see the dirt upon your garments? Or does he see garments that have been washed in Christ's blood? God will make you clean as in his sight. And how unfortunate it is sometimes when we think of the world in which we live in, we live in an unforgiving world that likes to point upon the dirt that was on our garments before. But yet how blessed it is the thought that God is a pardoning God. He forgives perfectly. He literally forgives and forgets. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. What a wonderful God we have. He is the great pardoning God. And we will be made clean in His sight to shine forth in the glory whereby God has washed away our sins. He has washed us with His own blood. And we're covered in the blood of Christ, which is the perfect and sin-free life of Christ that has been applied to our lives. For our sins were laid in Christ. And praise God that through His sacrifice, He has paid the sin debt that we owed he paid it in full and much more, for his blood and sacrifice is infinite and eternal in value. Notice finally that saints need to wash the uh, saints need to wash other people's feet as well. If you look at the verses thirteen and fourteen of this chapter, we read, "Ye call me master and lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your lord and master, have washed your feet." Ye ought also to wash one another's feet. Look at that verse 14. Ye, ought, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. This is the words of Christ to his disciples. This washing is not something that Christ does alone. But we that believe are told that we ought to wash one another's feet. How are we to do so? Of course, we cannot wash away the sins of other people. We should be reminded, rather, why Christ washes 
the disciples' feet in sanctification. He does so by way of forgiving their sins in a forgiving spirit. That is why he washes our feet when we come to him for forgiveness for our failures, for even misspoken words and unholy thoughts and impure deeds. And therefore, with this in mind, this is how we can wash each other's feet. It is by being forgiving, uh, by being forgiving to one another. By doing so, we wash one another's feet. And even also by seeking forgiveness from one another. Not to hold grudges, not to leave each other in the dirt, but to seek to wash each other's feet. The task in which Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet was a task of humility, as we noted in the introduction. He humbled himself. He stooped down to wash their feet. He picked up their feet. He examined the work in which he did to make sure they were thoroughly and efficiently washed and clean. And so we, believer, need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves and cast off pride, to cast off that proud spirit that says, I'm not apologizing for that fault, even though you know you're in fault. To cast off that spirit where you say, I'm not talking to so-and-so because they said this and that and they did this and that. I'm not talking to them until they apologize. I say you may wait and wait for an apology that might never come because they may not even know that they did fault to you. Let me ask you this. Are any of those things Christ-like? If that is a spirit that we have, is any of those things Christ-like? Is it right? Does God himself approve of those ways? No, I think of some Christians that like the acronym WWJD. What would Jesus do? And I get the concept of that, but it's wrong. For if we go through life asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? We look through our own bias lens, our own corrupt lens, that lens in which we always seek to justify our own sins and conform Christ to our own false reasoning to make him uh, to become, as it were, a false god in our mind. And we should not have this thought of what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? For we have the Scriptures before us, the complete Scriptures. We have the life of Christ, and we can look through the life of Christ and see what has He done? What did He do? Dear believer, we need to get to the book. Don't stand thinking about what, did, what would Jesus do, but get to the book and see what has Jesus done. What has Jesus done? And even when we think of the, this forgiving spirit, we see that Christ was an individual who forgave others. He forgave others that were, in man's eyes, unworthy to be forgiven of. We think of the teaching of Scripture, Ephesians 4, 32, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you look at the verses 34 and 35 of John 13, we read here, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Christ washed his disciples' feet because he loved them. And so uh, 
God commands that we are to love one another. We are to love all. We are to love both saint and sinner. And by doing so, we wash one another's feet because you show care and love for them and their soul. You try to wash the feet of the unconverted by telling them of Jesus the mighty to save, that they would go to him for that complete washing, that justifying washing. And so, upon being washed, they would return and wash your feet also. You wash the feet of the believer that they would be refreshed so that your relationship and friendship with other believers is strong, bright, and clean. As, God, as Christ had loved us by his grace, that is, his undeserved favor towards us when we deserve the complete opposite, so we should live and do so, to love one another, to show grace one to another. And what a tremendous words Christ says, even in this verse 35, where Christ says, by this, by the washing of each other's feet, by being forgiving, by loving one another, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. All men will know that ye are my disciples. Let me ask you, Christian, is that your desire? Is it your desire that the whole world in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and wherever you may be, that the whole world will know that you are truly a disciple of Christ. If that is your desire, then I say to you the words of Jesus, love one another. Love all. And I am not saying that we are to tolerate the sins of other individuals, for we're commanded in Ephesians 5.11 to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove them. That means we are to admonish them, convict, convince, and tell their faults. This is not to give it to them hard, to be harsh to them. We are to reprove them in love. How are you going to be a disciple of Christ? And the words in which you say, yes, they may be true, but they're harsh. We are to do so in love to their soul, to their soul that they would be drawn to God by his love, by the love of God, which won our hearts at the beginning, dear believer. Let me ask, will you obey this command? Will you love God with all your all and love your neighbor as yourself? Will you, love, will you in love show forth the faults of others and in love forgive one another? Will you determine to obey this that your feet and the feet of others would be clean? Will you that believe this morning if you have done wrong, will you get it right with God this morning and with others? Will you get right with God especially before you come to this table? God invites you to this table to have communion with him but to do so with a clean hand and a pure heart. It's not my aim this morning to discourage you, believer, from coming to the Lord's table. table. I'd be doing a great wrong to do so because the Lord invites you to come. But my aim is to bring you these thoughts to your mind, that we must prepare our hearts before we would partake of the symbols that shows forth Christ's death till he comes that we would do so with a heart that is made clean, a heart that does so out of love for Christ's work and desire to honor him for all that he has done for us. Oh, may the Lord draw near to us and help us.
to maintain a clean and close walk with God. And may we wash one another's feet, love one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has loved us and died for our sins. Let us sing together our, our closing hymn, the hymn 657. <clears throat>